This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Let's set the agenda, though, the Business Week agenda. We've got to talk about the markets. We've got to talk about the Fed news. Gina Martin-Adams is Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. She is in our Interactive Brokers studio, along with Dave Wilson, Stock Center at Bloomberg News. I want to get into analysis, but just quickly, Dave, set the scene in terms of the selling that we're seeing. Everything's down. Yeah. Everything's down. We can start there if we look at the 11 main industry groups in the S&P 500. I mean, it's predictable in a sense that you, you've got the financial companies among the worst performers on the day. And you talk about a group that gets hit as interest rates come down. They certainly qualify technology stocks as well, which is kind of interesting. It may be that people are just kind of selling shares that have done relatively well over well, time. Well, those valuations have stayed pretty high. Yeah, that's true, too. And, and let me bring in Gina, because you've done some research on that, right? Saying that some of that big tech, those valuations are still pretty high. Yeah, and I is where I think it's one of the places where investors were really hiding, hiding out. And so when you have a day like today where it's just sort of sell everything you have, they naturally are going to get uh, get a bit of the downdraft. But when we look at the valuation multiples, this is a group, the FAMIG stocks, the biggest five tech stocks are trading at one and a half times index valuations. I mean, this is an all-time high, near all-time high, and they really didn't see much valuation movement right. over the course of the last week. So investors were definitely hiding in that space. The thing I think we have to ask, and it's a question I've heard, um, US, oh, let me just mention, stocks extending their wrap. The S&P is now down more than 3%, so are each of the major averages. Something that I keep hearing around the newsroom, it's like, wait a minute, the markets got what the Fed want, you know, got what they wanted from the Federal Reserve—a very aggressive rate move—and yet now we're down. Is it just a case of yesterday was buy on the rumor, and today it's like, well, wait a minute. If the Fed thinks it's that bad, then okay, what's yeah. next? I think there's a little bit of both of those items in there, but I think the other thing that I would add to that is the markets probably didn't really get what they wanted. The equity market certainly would prefer that the Fed go back to the balance sheet. That's a direct mm. infusion of capital in the financial system. It doesn't require people to go out and borrow. They can get really creative. You know, we saw that with repo mm -hmm. over the course of the last year, and you're starting to see uh, LIBOR spreads, OIS spreads widen. You're starting to see repo tighten again. So there's a little bit of angst with regards to liquidity and what's happening in the interworkings of the financial system that I think the Fed could have attacked a little bit more directly. The other thing is, you know, there's a lot of skepticism with respect to how much the Fed really can impact the economy. The right. Fed can certainly impact market multiples. And this move right. will create a floor under multiples, hopefully. But what I think everyone's skeptical as to is, you know, is this really going to improve the earnings outlook due to coronavirus? It seems highly unlikely that that's the impact. And that's where we're really focused right now. Right. I mean, I want to turn it to you, Carol, in part because you were making a very good point as we were trying to get ready for the show and sort of figuring out who we're going to talk to and all these different things. I mean, there has this bit there has, it feels like, been this conflation over the past couple of years that somehow the markets are the economy and they're not. Right. And, and that mm -hmm. does feel like something that 
it's worth reminding people uh, about. And candidly, from a political perspective, that certainly is the message that's been sent from the, the administration in many ways. And it does feel like we're all trying to get our arms around that and, and maybe losing sight of that delineation. It's a great point. And it's, you know, if you go to, I was listening to Charlie when we were setting up our show and just kicking it off, you know, Powell saying, Jay Powell saying the economy is still strong, folks, but, you know, the virus is going to weigh on economic activity. So, you know, you kind of get your head around, was Jay Powell and company looking at what was going on in the financial markets or looking at what was going in the economy? Yeah, and I think that you triggered, you, you hit the nail on the head with the comments about economic activity because he suggested it's going to weigh on the economic activity for quite a bit longer than I think maybe some had been anticipating. Mm -hmm. Right. And when they move with a 50 basis point move like this, intermeeting, which you mentioned is extremely rare, the signal from that is, oh, what do you know? Right. You know, what do you know that maybe we don't know? How bad could it actually get? Right. And it, so you have to consider all these different impacts. Dave, take us back, though, to the financial crisis, because that's the last time that we saw, right, an emergency rate cut by the Federal Reserve. Does it feel, like I said to somebody, it doesn't feel like the financial crisis, but there's a lot that we don't know. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and you contrast the Fed moving the way they did with the way that the Trump administration had tried to play down the effects of the coronavirus, that it's not that big an issue. So you've got a contrast there, and it's like, for people watching what's going on, they got to be thinking, who knows what? And right. How come it doesn't all kind of fit together the way it should? Right. And we so, pretty much erased almost everything we gained back yesterday. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, real estate and utility stocks holding up relatively well. The home builders are higher now. Mm -hmm. There's a surprise <laughs> given right. that, you know, if interest rates are coming down, it means it gets cheaper to borrow to buy houses. But, you know, there's not a whole lot uh, beyond that that really kind of stands out in terms of what's doing relatively well here. 20 seconds. What are you going to be watching in terms of market activity? Or what do you, what do you yeah. think happens from I mean, here? I think key levels are always really important to watch when the market's bouncing around this much. Uh, key levels are 3,000, then 2,950. Yeah. And then the key level where we broke at or stopped at last week was 2,860 or so, which is about a 50% retracement of the rally. So I'd watch the key okay. levels first and then the economic data and indicators second. All right, and we are gonna get Thank a jobs you. report on Friday, obviously backward looking, but uh, this has all been going on for a little bit of time. Thank you so much, Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, and Dave Wilson, Stocks Editor. He'll be back in a little bit with his chart and stock of the day. So this is typically Wall Street's poaching season. Um, this story, by the way, among our most read on the Bloomberg. And the virus, well, it's kind of upending all of that. Uh, just when it, speaking of which, I want to bring you uh, one quick headline uh, across the Bloomberg right now related to the virus. Spanish authorities reporting the country's first COVID-19 death. So that, and that is comes just notable. after uh, Washington saying it's had its seventh death right, from the virus exactly. here in the United States. All right. So let's so bring it back to Wall Street. Virus and Wall Street, because it's definitely having an impact here already. Uh, um, let's talk about the story. It's among the most read. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. There's a lot of stuff going on. Lenan Nguyen is our finance reporter at Bloomberg News. She is in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, Lenan, talk to us about this story and what typically goes on on Wall Street and what's happening because of the virus. Okay, so what typically happens on Wall Street in February is that people get their bonuses, they get their stocks into their account, and then if they're thinking about a making a move, boom, that's the time to do it, right? You've got the money, you can take it and run, or you 
you can parlay it into a nice offer and uh, you know try to get your own bank or your own firm to give you a raise. That's not happening right now because in order to get an offer, you usually have to see people in person to lock in that final offer, right? You, people don't want to hire candidates if they haven't met them in person. Right, don't really, makes sense. Exactly. And so a lot of what's being done is teleconference, but when it comes to sealing the deal, it's a little tricky if you can't actually see people in person. So help us understand the geography here, because obviously Asia, and we know this anecdotally and statistically, even at this point empirically, has been in many ways, if not shut down, largely locked down in many ways. What did we learn from Asia, and then how does it sort of transform into Europe and the U.S.? So what we learned from Asia is that everything is kind of locked down and that things are stalled. And so there are some interview processes that are taking place via teleconference, mm -hmm. But when it comes to that final hurdle, uh, firms are having to sort of do things like case-by-case uh, -case approvals to get someone to come physically into the office. They have to do temperature checks in certain lobbies in order to get a candidate in the door. So it's just this kind of extra hurdle that uh, you really have to want to hire a candidate in order to get them through all of that. And I do wonder about people, you know, especially with the ability to go from the States to Europe or to Asia, right? Like that kind of crisscross, whether or not that really drops. And I I do wonder if when everything is over, do they come back and do it or do they say, ah, we'll just work on it next year? Yeah, that's a really important point because it's not just as if Asian candidates are staying in their own region. We have big international firms here, right. people who move across regions. And so a lot of the recruiters we've talked to have said that that type of international hiring is definitely going to either be, be delayed or scrapped altogether. Right. So, Lenin, you and your colleagues are talking to people on Wall Street all day, every day. Uh, there's been some great reporting from your team about, you know, sort of the steps that people are taking related to, you know, curtailing travel, curtailing even a little bit of deal making, which is a natural extension of that. What's the most interesting thing you've been hearing as you talk to colleagues or you talk to uh, folks out on Wall Street about what banks are doing? I think the most interesting thing is what happened today, which is a Fed rate cut. Um, yeah. I think that's going to have <sighs> well, major. That. That's going to have major <laughs> nuts, right? impact across all industries, the insurance industry, rate sensitive industries, um, you know, that signals, I think, a sense of worry amongst the people that we are talking to that's kind of bigger than their day jobs. Okay, mm -hmm. sure, they're expecting disruptions to their everyday lives, to their jobs. Um, you know, they might have to sit further away from their colleagues or be moved to disaster recovery sites. But I think everyone is thinking about the bigger picture here, which right. is what's going to happen to the economy, what's going to happen to the world. Well, and someone, you know, not so uh, informed when it comes to Fed policy said to me, well, you know, they can just hike rates, you know, you know in a month or so. I'm like, no, it, it doesn't work like that. I mean, when the Fed goes to do this, they do it because they really see some concerns about the economic and market outlook. And it, it's not typical for them then to be like, oh, wait, it's not so bad. You know, that's just not how it works. And, you know, for the Fed to do this when it wasn't a normal Fed meeting for them to do half a point and be so aggressive, this says something about either their concerns or their concerns about how the virus ultimately impacts the U.S. economy. That's right. And it's taking the temperature. Um, you know, that's a play on words. But yeah, yeah the, the, the banks are taking people's temperatures when they get to the building. But also that's showing what the temperature is in the markets, which is, you know, pretty hot. Right. All right. So where do you think I mean, how does this ultimately sort of get to the bottom line and people's personal bottom lines, because they don't change jobs, you know, as you said at mm -hmm. the top, you know, often this is the using another Wall Street term, sort of the leverage time where people say, oh, I, made, I just made this big bonus, you're going to pay me this, or they go back and, you know, use an offer that they're getting. I mean, ultimately, do we see this sort of play through comp 
going into next year, this could have at least a midterm effect, right? Yes. One of the recruiters we talked to said, if you haven't gotten your bonus yet, probably your firm is going to use the virus as an excuse to reduce your comp. But beyond that, I think people are hunkering down. They don't see a vibrant economic outlook. And so they might be less likely to try and parlay another offer because they don't see anything out there. Activity is just not that high. Hey, one last question. How easy for the financial firms is it to, if the virus gets to, you know, a pretty serious situation in terms of quarantines here in these major cities in New York, of course, included, you know, for them to set up trading or have trading operations elsewhere and to kind of keep a certain amount of the core activities going. Are they set up for this? It's difficult. So Eliza Martinuzzi, um, one of our columnists today, wrote about the difficulty of traders uh, being able to be relocated. A lot of other functions, back office and different roles, very easy to do. But traders talk on recorded lines. They have super fast internet connections. They deal with tons of data, process millions of trades in a day. So it's pretty tricky. Yeah, I mean, not to be too broke about it, but you know, you've got all these massive infrastructures, right. Bloomberg terminals and things like that. There's Bloomberg anywhere, of course. But you know, like you do have this situation where you know it, it, there is a human element to this business, especially when it comes to uh, trading. Great reporting, as always, Lynn Ann Nguyen, finance reporter for Bloomberg. Her story, Wall Street poaching season up ended as virus stalls interviews it is not surprisingly i called it as soon as we saw it this morning i was like well this is going to be one of the most read stories yeah absolutely and it no makes sense there. Into the great wide open. yeah uh we are certainly living in interesting times a couple of stories um that talk about those interesting times uh featured in the magazine this week one is a warning uh or i should say a warning from me because they're not necessarily uplifting stories one is about how to protect your company against the coronavirus um definitely very helpful the other what happens to your emails after you die so happy tuesday everyone um ariane cohen is a freelance contributor to business week joining us on the phone from new york city and uh in our bloomberg interactive broker studio right here in new york is the editor of Business Week magazine, Joel Weber. And we do have to start with the virus. I think this is really useful. Um, you know, we're all thinking about, we're all talking about what happens to our company. Around, let's start with you. Talk to us a little bit about this checklist that you came up with and how you went about it. Yeah, um, I wanted to narrow down just the kind of basic things that all executives should have on their minds. And the really um, key, most, most important item is that um, people really need to identify what their critical operations are. So if all hell is breaking loose, what are the things that your company absolutely needs to do? Uh, so this means that, you know, maybe the financial department, they need to be paying vendors and paying employees, but, you know, taxes and audit stuff all goes by the wayside. And they also need to identify what's the minimum that customers will accept. Uh, so maybe that means that, you know, your customer will only get half of their expected shipment. Um, but having those conversations now and figuring that out is the really um, key underlying step to being able to come up with a plan. All right. So uh, this is Joel. The uh, What I love about this was that there's like the basics, right? Like you, the easy stuff, as you call it. And it's mm-hmm. business continuity, IT recovery, getting a war room set up. Where where do you feel like it, the, the switch... Uh, changes a little bit and it becomes, oh, wow, I haven't thought about that yet. Um, I think that people often don't have backups to their backups. Hmm. Um, in this case, you know, lots of people had a backup factory somewhere else in China that's now out of commission. Um, and what uh, uh, supply chain people kept telling me over and over again is that people really need to have a backup to the backup to the backup and that these may be really bad options. 
Um, this, you know, you may end up paying five or ten times what you used to pay uh, for one part. But if it's a pivotal part to your business, then that's what's happening. And so you may have a list of kind of six or seven options. Um, the other thing that was surprising was that uh, I think what's fallen through the cracks for a lot of companies is they didn't realize that they're not really customer number one with their supplier. Maybe yeah. they're customer number 34. Uh, or 172. That, <laughs> yes. Right. And Bummer. so they're suddenly, they're suddenly realizing that their supplier in order to stay in business is going to uh, really cater to customers number one through three, and they are not those customers. Uh, one of the things you point out, which I have to say I have not read, is ISO, ISO 22301. Um, what's that? So the International Organization for Standardizations, um, they are an organization that creates guidelines for companies for kind of all situations, and they wrote a very dense, hard-to-follow um, set of guidelines for what to do with business disturbances. Um, it's kind of unreadable. You kind of want to just Google ISO 22301 in plain English, and then you'll find somebody who translated it for you into speakable <laughs> language. Um, but they run through all of this for pages and pages to tell you exactly how to set up a, an emergency plan and what a risk management department is and on and on. And so when you talk to people, I mean, when you were talking to the crisis planning supply chain experts for this story, were they what, what was the tone that they're taking uh, with this coronavirus crisis right now? Were they thinking like, oh, my, this is the big one or were they saying, all right, we've sort of seen this before? What what's their perspective? Um, they are very gentle um, <laughs> They tend to say that um, no one was really prepared for this and that maybe. Um, this is a wake-up call and that this is a good time for people to actually um, appropriately prepare. Generally speaking, um, businesses are very well prepared for what they're required to be prepared for. So certain financial companies have SEC regulations requiring them to write a plan for, you know, how would they back up their technology and information. That's what I think. Everybody, right, has been all in on, you know, cybersecurity and protections in the high-tech world. And here we are with a virus and they're caught, you know, really not knowing or not, not prepared for it. Exactly. Yeah. People aren't prepared. And um, a really good piece of advice um, is to just imagine um, any number of total disasters happening right now, like a pandemic or, uh, you know, your office, you know, just disappears. What would you do? Um, and then sitting and planning from there. OK, so I, I want to go a little bit, a little bit morbid. Worst case scenario, say I die. Uh, I like that mm -hmm. you paired this with uh, what happens to my email when I die? Because I, I should probably yeah. look I warned, into a contingency plan. I for warned everybody this was all going to be dark. I, I know it's going to be dark. <laughs> Sorry. So what happens? Um, I should tell you, I found out about email and death in a in a journal called Death Studies. That is a <laughs> scholarly journal all about death. Wow. Um, I found an email, an article called Email and Death, and and here we are today on the radio talking about it. Um, uh, so yes, email help follows you to your grave. Um, so for your private email, the important thing that you need to know is if you want to make sure that no one has access to it, um, you should use um, Gmail. And they have something called in, um, Inactive Account Manager, where you can set your account after it's been inactive for 3 to 18 months. You can set it to either delete itself, or you can name up to 10 beneficiaries for um, individual products, such as your um, photos or your Gmail or your YouTube, and you can be very specific about that. 
Um, if you haven't done that, and Google is the only company that offers something like this right now. All of the other major service providers do not. If you haven't done that, you want to be very specific in your will or trust documentation. Uh, the thing that people really need to do is specify about photos. That tends to be a big deal. Yeah. Say, I want my spouse to have access to my photos in my Apple ID account. Um, and, you know, be very specific. And um, what will happen is after you pass away, um, someone will have to go to court and get a court order, and then that court order will be given to Apple, and Apple will provide access to that specific thing. Right. I love, though, the stuff about the work. I mean, if you do something at work, you should assume it belongs to work. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know. Yep. I think that's important are, for people to remember. Yeah. For sure. Right? Yeah. All right. Well, it's really uh, a pair of really great stories, uh, hopefully – things people can immediately put into practice one as we said a little bit darker but uh useful nonetheless. it's super dark tuesday apparently it is, it is. so death studies apparently an academic journal published 10 times a year and it's all about issues related to death dying bereavement and death <laughs> yeah, education yeah, exactly. oh. yeah new subscriber there we go ariane cohen is a writer for bloomberg this week she joined us on the phone from new york city joel weber the editor of the magazine here he was here with us in New York City. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Elena Shalecheva is here, senior U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics, and Katie Greifeld, cross-asset reporter for Bloomberg. Elena, want to start with you. What was the vibe on the Bloomberg Economics team uh, when Mr. Powell and team put that message out and then uh, when Chair Powell spoke? So uh, the Fed did it because uh, they wanted to stop uh, tightening in financial conditions. And How uh, tight were they, they? they? They were like as tight as probably back in 2015, 16, when, you know, there was uh, a China currency devaluation and all of that. Okay. And um, it was not as tight as during the financial crisis. But the Fed decided to preemptively cut rates. Mm -hmm. So before they received any hard evidence of the virus impact. So we're going to get some uh, data on that uh, in the coming weeks. Actually, uh, tomorrow we're going to get Beige Book. Uh, we will hear some anecdotes from business contacts. But the Fed had already spoken to their business I was just going to say, the Fed already has seen some of this Absolutely. or was aware of so it. So it was just not public, but they are uh, currently, they are talking constantly to their business contacts. And uh, from what they heard, uh, they thought that it would be a great uh, move to sh just to uh, make sure and, and act preemptively. Yeah, I got to say, when uh, we were on the call, I missed the headline. I was on the call, and you said it, and I didn't catch it till like, later on. And, I'm like, and then, like, seven minutes, so you're like, what? oh, my God. Well, I Wait, saw what? it up on the TV screen. I'm like, are you kidding me? Only because I remember coming in, even pre-crisis, where the Fed would do an emergency cut because of either something, um, I think, about the Asian contagion mm -hmm. when we had problems there and, you know, long-term capital management. Like, different times where the Fed would jump in, and you were like, whoa, this is really serious. Every day we were getting something. Exactly. So, Katie, come on in on this. I mean, you guys, uh, cross-asset reporter here at Bloomberg News, I mean, when that headline crossed, I mean, tell me some of what you're hearing from market watchers and economic watchers. Well, it was a wild day in markets because initially stocks, yields, they spiked after that cut. Mm -hmm. But then Powell held that press conference, and that's when things really started to turn south. I think he was maybe a little too honest. I mean, he acknowledged that the risks to the U.S. economy have changed, but he also said that the Fed's tools to address it are 
inadequate, mm. which we all knew, you know, the Fed can't stop a health crisis. But that's not what investors wanted to hear today. You know, there was a lot of hope that maybe we're going to see some global coordinated central bank action. Right. But we didn't get that. We got this emergency cut just from the Fed acting alone. So that really clearly was a disappointment. And so as you talk to investors and, and others, colleagues and whatnot, what was the thing that sort of jumped out at you in terms of themes, just sort of too little, too late, not enough, wrong message, or maybe the worst is yet to come? Really all over the spectrum. Yeah. You hear people arguing that it's too early. You know, we haven't seen this trickle into U.S. data yet. You know, we had weak ISM figures yesterday, but we really haven't seen anything that would justify a 50 basis point cut. Then you hear it on the other end that, you know, they're being way too cautious. You know, they should have gone 100 basis points or at least that, you know, they should have opened the door to perhaps they'd look to utilize other tools as well. Well, the goal of central bankers too is to be preemptive, right? They don't want to see the economy turn into a downturn or a recession. They want to get ahead of it. Have they got, I mean, was, was there stuff out there, Yelena, that you and the Bloomberg economics team were seeing uh, we have these conversations, you know, every day with you, you with you folks. Um, that was starting to get a little bit worrisome. Well, they, uh, I think, they learned the lesson from 2018, from the end of 2018, when actually things in the markets were deteriorating, and they delivered a rate hike. Remember, in mm -hmm. the fourth quarter of 2018, so uh, they, I think, learned from their lesson uh, from the past, and uh, they delivered what they were supposed. to So it was to a deliver. good thing for them to do. Because I, I know, I, I know, Gina Martin Adams was talking earlier about mm -hmm. that. Maybe they should have done something with the balance sheet. Well, I think uh, they used the primary tool. This is the first line of defense, and that's uh, they went with it. So Powell actually at the press conference said that not at this uh, uh, point. Uh, they only considered uh, the uh, interest rate lever. So mm. I think when and if they get to the bottom, and uh, we know that they will eventually get there, so there will be other tools uh, at their disposal. I'm just looking at rates, man. It just like blows my mind. Um, you know, Katie, what else are you hearing in terms of we got a, we've got a lot more to go this week, and of course we get that monthly jobs report come Friday. Right. Uh, I am curious what folks are saying. Absolutely. I mean, I can tell you that I felt a bit breathless when I saw that zero handle on the ten-year yield, and I think that was the feeling in markets as well. And we're one point zero zero seven right now. Right on that so, ten-year. Yeah, flirting with that 1% level. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see, is this a line in the sand for the market? You know, do the, we bounce back in Asian trading? Do people come in and say, we've gone too far too fast? Or is it really flying blind here? Is there more to fall? Carol, like you said, it's only Tuesday. There's a lot more to go in this week. Right. And let's not forget, we have a Fed meeting in two weeks. I mean, right. what well, happens there? That's a great question. So what happens there, Elena? I think uh, they delivered insurance for now. And if things stabilize more or less from now on, we'll, we'll, they will probably skip that meeting. Could they cut again? They can absolutely cut again. Wow. Uh, our current forecast is uh, they cut rates further in April and June. Mm. Wow. In There's April, not, June, so not this month, the next month, and then in June. All right. They don't have much room anymore. Well, they will use this, uh, uh, the interest rate lever first, and then they have other tools at right. their disposal. Right, exactly. All wow. right, we will be keeping an eye on Hence all of that. Hence the breathlessness, right? Yeah, I exactly. mean, it's nuts. All right, great stuff. Thank you so much to both of you. Yelena Shalechiva, Senior U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics, and Katie Greifeld, cross-asset reporter for Bloomberg. A very busy day for both of you. I'm driving in my car 
I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Jim Russell is back with us, principal and portfolio manager at Ball & Gainer. They've got over $38 billion in assets under management. Uh, Jim with us on the phone from Cincinnati. Jim, um, wild day. Didn't necessarily start uh, maybe how we expected with that emergency move and surprise move uh, by the Federal Reserve. Although the market's safe to say yesterday we're anticipating it. How do you read kind of where we are and to see the market you know, ending the day uh, in the red. Yeah, Carol, uh, thanks for having me on again. Um, I guess our read would be this. Uh, we, we view the, the current situation as really two, two important crises that are taking place uh, at, at the same time. Number one is a public health crisis. Uh, I think everybody's aware of the spread of the coronavirus globally and, and maybe increasingly in the United States. Uh, that is a separate issue from maybe what we're talking about today. The second, of course, is the economic impact uh, of the supply shock. Uh, this is increasingly uh, uh, moving beyond travel, uh, hotels, restaurants, uh, and other things, and perhaps uh, resulting in uh, transportation uh, limitations, meeting cancellations, slowdowns uh, across the board. So uh, the market, of course, fears a recession uh, on a global basis and here in the United States, and that's what the S&P 500 and, importantly, the fixed income markets are responding to as well. Well, and we should note that we are seeing uh, stocks here in the U.S., taking a leg down uh, here in the last few minutes of trading today on, on a Tuesday. They had been hovering around down 2% or mm -hmm. so for the last hour at least. Uh, and now as we get to the close, the Dow, uh, the S&P, the NASDAQ, all hovering around down around 3%. So we've obviously got about nine minutes or so until the close of trading. So we'll see where we end up. Yeah. Hey, you know, Jim, so how do you put this in perspective with some of the other, you know, pullbacks that we've seen and 10% corrections that we've seen in the equity universe, certainly since the financial crisis? Right. Uh, we would uh, categorize it as slightly different and somewhat unique. Uh, some of the other pullbacks that we have seen, Carol, have been led by the credit markets, meaning a blowout in high yield uh, spreads to the U.S. Treasury. Uh, high yield uh, uh, bonds are trading a little bit higher and spreading out a little bit from U.S. Treasury uh, securities, but they're following equities down as opposed to leading equities down. So right now we think this is an emotional anticipatory uh, move by the equity markets that are, that are anticipating candidly uh, the slowdown uh, in U.S. businesses, earnings cuts, GDP cuts, global slowdown, and of course, the supply disruptions in China. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's our understanding that China seems to be uh, getting some degree of their hands around this issue in China, uh, and perhaps even getting back to work to some degree. Uh, that, of course, does not mean that uh, South Korea, Europe, the Middle East, and certainly the United States are out of the woods. I think it uh, continues to be a growing problem in some of these other non-Chinese geographies, and we'll 
continue to be uh, worse rather than better in the days ahead. So I do think that the nature of the issue is open-ended and, and uncertainty uh, is, of course, um, uh, what, what investors are focused on. This is the classic black swan event uh, that folks did not anticipate, could not have anticipated, and has no easy or convenient closure to it. Right. Yeah, it's interesting to to think about sort of China as the as the marker here, Jim, in the sense that it is a very tightly run country, to say the least, and a tightly run a yeah. state sponsored economy uh, in many ways, and a country that was able to enact some, I think it's fair to say, draconian measures in order right. to uh, contain this. So I think it feels like that's one of the things that is continuing to uh, to worry investors here, right? Right. I, we would agree. I mean, it's our understanding that 55 million people were locked down with travel con, uh, curtailed, including the city of Wuhan, which right. is a city of 11 million people. And so these are really uh, lockdowns and quarantines of scale and really not available or unimplementable, I think, uh, in areas like Europe, uh, the Middle East and the United States. All right. Jim Russell, thank you so much. Principal and Portfolio Manager at Ball & Gainer on the phone from Cincinnati. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.